Welcome to the new Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. Hello, and thank you for joining us on this special episode of the new Arab Voice. Ten years ago this month, protesters took to the streets across Syria, demanding an end to the rule of Bashar al-Assad. Inspired by similar protests in Egypt, Tunisia, Algeria and across the region, Syrians sought a democratic and just society, free from the oppression of the secret police and the rule of the Assad family, who had controlled the country since the 70s. The Assad regime quickly clamped down on the protesters, and events in the country soon entered into a downward spiral. Armed groups began to form, and a deadly civil war began. Over the next 10 years, Syria was torn apart, with no part of the country or its society left untouched. On this episode of The New Arab Voice, we're going to explore two aspects of the conflict, and what they might mean for the future of the country. First up, we're going to look at the Syrian economy and ask economists and policy experts what sectors have been affected, what it means for the people, and also how US sanctions might be doing more harm than good. That means NGOs have a tough time trying to fund for programs, and it creates a lot of disruption, and it ends up diverting a lot of resources Then, stay tuned to hear the circumstances plaguing internally displaced persons living in overcrowded and dangerous refuge camps. We'll speak to Syria experts Noha Alkamcha and Diana Reyes on how IDPs face particular health, economic and psychological risks. Raising a family in this context, I think, is underestimated and undercovered. Um, And mental health needs are great. I mean, across the population, um, among women, the elderly, those who are disabled, And I think um, the psychosocial stressors that are experienced by this woman are really underestimated and underreported. Hello, sir. The Syrian battlefield has entered into an uneasy stalemate. Competing sides, unable or unwilling to push and secure complete control. Without major military confrontations and increased speculation about the prospects of some sort of possible political solution, people both inside and outside the country are looking to the future. But as surely as night follows day, the future costs money, and it should come as no surprise to anyone that 10 years of conflict will have devastating repercussions for a country's economy. Over, over the course of the uprising and then conflict, the, actually, the economy actually went down uh, very gradually. This is Jihad Yazidji, editor-in-chief of the Syria Report, an online publication dedicated to covering Syria's economic affairs. You had, of course, the first stage, which was the, uh, the onset of the uprising, which quite quickly had an impact in the sense that some sectors such as tourism, which was relatively important, uh, stopped almost uh, immediately. Uh, You have a lot of investment decisions that were postponed, but uh, you didn't have much violence. So most business sectors continue to operate relatively normally. 
you had a second stage in that uh, in that decline, which was the sanctions that were imposed by most Western countries towards the fall of 2011. And these sanctions had an impact actually on the oil sector, which was by far the main source of foreign currency receipts for the government uh, and for the economy as a whole, and, and on the banking sector. So that, had, that was a second level in the, if you want, in the decline of the economy. And then uh, you had the gradual increase in violence. And uh, so starting, I would say, the spring of 2012, where the violence began to, to increase and that had uh, a renewed, I mean, a more important impact on the economy. And I would say that the last stage, if you want, was 2013, where uh, really the economy started imploded after the, uh, the chemical attack in the Ruta, which w- went unpunished. Because if you want, the consequences rather of, these, uh, of this attack were quite significant in terms of the uh, increase in violence in the systematic destructions of large urban areas and civilian areas, and an overwhelming feeling among uh, the business community that things were not going to get better anytime. Uh, and so that, was, that had a major impact in the de- deterioration of the economic situation. Of course, uh, year after year, things have continued going from bad to worse with more and more war, uh, more and more destruction, we could add uh, maybe a last stage, which is the collapse of the Lebanese economy at the end of 2019. Between 2010 and 2021, the per capita budget in Syria dropped from $2,382 to $227, a decline of 70%. In March 2011, one US dollar would cost you 47 Syrian pounds. In February this year, one US dollar would cost you a staggering 3,750 Syrian pounds. According to a report by Syrian newspaper Kassioun, in 2020 alone, the cost of living rose by 74%. To secure comfortable standards of living, a Syrian family living in Damascus would need 700,000 Syrian pounds or $304 a month. Yet, an average monthly salary for a public sector worker is around 55,000 Syrian pounds, or $24 a month. On top of stagnating wages, rising prices and continuing inflation, the Syrian government in recent months have cut subsidies for bread and fuel, leaving families struggling to survive. Any one of these issues is bad, Together, they represent a catastrophe. But they're not the country's only economic woes. and might not even be its worst. The scale of the destruction of the infrastructure is so big when we talk of, you know, really all the physical infrastructure, production capacity, road, electricity networks, you know, you name it. Physical destruction of the country has been huge. And this is, in my view, the single most important factor in the destruction of the Syrian economy. Of course, you have a number of other factors, the collapse of the currency, the Western sanctions, which actually had an impact on the collapse of the currency. Uh, But but the the physical destruction of the economy is by far the the, the single most uh, important item. By 2018, according to estimates by the World Bank, one third of Syria's housing stock and half of its health and educational facilities had been destroyed. When you start adding up roads, factories, energy plants, offices and any other kind of business or building you can think of, the numbers become pretty eye-watering. 
The direct cost of damage to physical infrastructure is difficult to measure without on-the-ground surveys, which are not available. But the cost of this damage to the economy, which includes the physical loss of infrastructure, combined with the value of the businesses as a whole and all that they contributed, is estimated to run into the hundreds of billions of dollars. Syria's economic problems are many, but lately it's been the issue of sanctions, in particular those of the US, that have come under close scrutiny, especially in relation to any future recovery the country may have. Earlier today, the United States Department of Treasury's Office of Foreign Asset Control imposed sanctions in response to the April 4, 2017 sarin attack on innocent civilians by the regime of Syrian dictator Assad. Since the start of the conflict, the U.S. has been unwilling or unable to commit to concerted military action against the Assad regime and instead opted for a campaign of maximum pressure through economic sanctions. Today they have, they, they, they have a significant impact uh, on, on the economy and on the ruling elite. They have an impact very simply because uh, from the moment you decide to put sanctions even on some individuals uh, in, in, in a country or in some sectors, you are going to have uh, a lot of uh, Western countries and Western business actors that are going to refuse to work with the, with the, with the Syria. So to give it is widely accepted in Washington that the Assad regime should face repercussions for its brutal crackdown and the war crimes it has committed. Hence, economic sanctions. I think the U.S. sanctions can serve a targeted goal. Um, they're obviously a political tool that could potentially achieve some, some gains. Basma Alush, policy and advocacy advisor for the Norwegian Refugee Council, focusing on U.S. humanitarian policy. However, I think in, in this situation and what we're seeing right now is that the cost of these of this tool seems to outweigh the benefits. So from where I see The sanctions that were intended as a solution to a problem are now being viewed by many as a cause of a problem. In the summary of the Caesar Syria Civilian Protection Act of 2019, it stated, The president shall impose sanctions on foreign persons that, one, provide significant support or engage in a significant transaction with the Syrian government or those acting on behalf of Syria, Russia or Iran, or two, are knowingly responsible for serious human rights abuses against the Syrian people. The U.S. sanctions are incredibly broad in their scope and no part of the Syrian economy is seemingly off-limits. And that, according to Basma, is to their detriment. Things have really shifted in the past at least five years. You know, the, the situation on the ground is, has changed significantly. I think even in the last couple of years, the situation has changed. And so without having the adaptability and, and you know, the the sort of the flexibility to stay updated and to stay grounded in in what's actually going on in in Syria having you know these grandiose asks from Washington or whatever you know western capital could sometimes miss the the granularity of what actually needs to happen on the ground so i mean it sometimes the the costs as i mentioned of of these measures of these tools um, really uh, could put, you know offset the benefits where we're seeing the deterioration of of the local markets of of the economy of people's access to basic goods and services and so 
The sanctions imposed by the US are lofty in their ambition and seek to bring down a hammer on top of the regime and all those who work alongside it. But the consequences of these actions don't stay at the top. They trickle downhill. There's definitely like direct correlation that results from from overcompliance that that we see where let's say like a small company that provides inputs for maybe a larger or medium-sized pharmaceutical company in Syria and when that pharmaceutical pharmaceutical company isn't able to import any of the the you know the products that they need for their for their drug manufacturing or their you know for or their medicine then that trickles down where they might no longer be able to to you know engage or, or have any transactions with the smaller company and that trickles all the way down to the individual level where this person might be laid off you know this Syrian might not not be able to provide um, for their family they might have to close up shop which means that's that's a loss of income for not only this individual but the the family that they support <laughs> Sanctions, combined with other existing problems, have created desperate shortages of basic goods in Syria. Simultaneously, they have contributed to further falls in the value of the Syrian pound. So the goods that are available have now also become cripplingly expensive. The UN World Food Programme reported this year that 12.4 million people across Syria are food insecure. Now there's a shortage in bread in the of bread in the country where you have people again also waiting in long queues that has resulted in many children being forced out of school because you know a girl needs to go wait in a long queue for for bread and and the the son is often pulled out of school to go work to find some kind of supplemental income to support their families so i think bread and fuel shortages mean that the number of people who are in need rises which in turn increases the demand for aid from the NGO sector. But even organisations that provide aid are struggling to avoid the wrath of US sanctions. There's two major consequences that are obviously related. The first is the the overcompliance and the de-risking that organizations have had to deal with, um, where you see like private companies like banks, insurance companies, suppliers tend to remove themselves from the process where they don't want to engage on anything to do with Syria. And in turn, that means NGOs have a tough time paying salaries, bringing in goods, bringing in, um, trying to fund for programs. And it creates a lot of disruption into the programming and it ends up diverting a lot of resources that are very much needed to respond and to try to provide for the needs of, of people on the ground. And it diverts these resources to trying to understand, to deal with all the the obstacles and the barriers that that sanctions creates. So to to give you kind of some some concrete examples, you know, most of the banks in Syria are sanctioned. And so bringing in funds through entities that are not sanctioned has has been a significant challenge. And so for for NGOs, almost 20% of the NGOs on the ground have experienced some kind of disruption in transferring funds into Syria, and most have actually experienced the complete stopping of transferring these funds, where they were com- they were completely stopped by corresponding banks because they didn't want to engage with Syria. And when you push them on trying to understand why, they say, "Oh, internal compliance risks," 
or things of the sort. And so that has really had a significant impact for the organizations. And this almost Kafkaesque administrative nightmare continues. But then the second issue is, is still related to the overcompliance issue is, is the challenge of actually staying compliant. You know, there are some licenses and some exemptions that are allotted within these sanctions regimes, but they often require extensive expertise and capacity to be able to apply um, for these exemptions. Oftentimes, these exemptions are very particular to a single project or process or transaction, whereas projects are, have to continue, organizations need to continue operating. And so there isn't any kind of large or, or more broad-scaled um, exemption that an organization can apply for to, to be able to continue their operations. And you know, Syrian businesses are often left in the dark on this because they don't have the legal capacity to understand U.S. law. They don't have the resources that they need to be able to comply with, with, the, with the law. And so are often kind of stuck where they're, they're cut off from the world. They're, they're not able to operate or continue dealing with, with external actors. So what is the U.S. to do? It can't or won't turn a blind eye to the crimes committed by the Assad regime, but the collateral damage from the primary weapon in their economic arsenal runs a high risk of causing a lot more harm than good. Basma Alush says there are options. There, there are really three things that the U.S. government can, can take to ensure that the safeguards allowed or carved out in these sanctions are actually implemented and, and done effectively. The first is for the U.S. to publicly outline the steps that it has taken to address banks' risk averseness and encourage them to manage risk and keep customers within transparent, regulated financial channels, this could be done by conducting education sessions with heads of banks to explain the exemptions allowed in the sanctions and, and emphasize that these measures do not prohibit transacting with humanitarian NGOs and non-sanctioned Syrian individuals. The second thing that the U.S. could do is have the Treasury Department establish or facilitate some kind of dialogue between these regulatory bodies, NGOs, and other stakeholders on, on the allowances embedded in the sanctions regimes to ensure that these entities are connected to facilitate the movement of, of permitted goods. And I think lastly, um, you know, as I mentioned, with many banks in Syria sanctioned, NGOs have been you know, sometimes having to carry cash from Lebanon. And now with the financial crisis in Lebanon, we're, we're no longer able to do that. And so a workaround needs to be created in order to facilitate the, the ability of humanitarian organizations to access financial services for, for timely delivery of assistance. And I think I'll even add to that where even again, as you know, Syrian entities and Syrian, non-sanctioned Syrian um, business folks need to also have access to, to this, this workaround so that they can also actually access financial services to keep them you know, in business operating and functioning. And so I would propose, and I think there's been a few economists and scholars calling for a dedicated humanitarian banking channel. And this is really to ensure that there's unhindered flow of humanitarian resources, goods um, into government controlled areas in Syria that this channel could also, you know, be helpful for, for ordinary Syrian business owners 
the need to purchase raw material, you know, or what have you to manufacture goods in Syria to, to stay afloat and, you know, to keep the, the local economy running as well, because that's obviously very important too. Options are available to Western powers that will allow them to maintain pressure on a regime which brutalises its own people and give the impression of taking active measures without further increasing the suffering of those living under the fist. But such a change in US policy would be in no way a panacea for Syria's economic problems. Even with all the aid in the world, the people still live in a country in desperate need of funds for reconstruction. But don't hold your breath. I think there are a number of things to be aware of. First of all, it is very unlikely that any reconstruction drive will will happen if you do not have a political solution to the conflict. You are never going to get the World Bank if you don't have a deal, a political deal in Syria. That's going to be very complicated. You are also not going to have reconstruction, obviously, as long as you have sanctions. So even if some countries were willing to, to, to put in some money into Syria, the amounts will still be very minimal because you have too many actors in these countries, in China, in Russia, that do not want to intervene or to work in Syria because of Western uh, sanctions. So, so these are really two important factors to take into account. And the third one, I think, which we need to, t- to be aware of is that the international community as a whole is exhausted with providing large-scale financing and all the more so after the COVID-19 crisis. The priority of funding now is going to somewhere else. I mean, they, the Western economies need to re- refinance their economies. The same thing applies to the Gulf or to Russia. So for sure... In the short to medium term, even if there were to be a political solution, say, today or tomorrow, funding will come, but at a very slow pace. But with recent staffing changes in Washington, D.C., Basma does have hope for positive change that might be going in the right direction. I'm always hopeful for change. Um, I think the Biden administration have put out positive signals um, in the beginning where they're, they've announced that they're doing kind of a review of, of their entire sanctions regimes or tools imposed around the world. I think that's an excellent first step. It's just a matter of you know, conducting this review in a very timely fashion where prolonged impacts of, of these sanctions measures are assessed quickly so that solutions and ways to, to improve are, are taken as you know, quickly too, so that the, the impacts on, on ordinary civilians is, is mitigated as much as possible. On what grounds should we return? There is no guaranteeing country. There are no guaranteeing organizations. If we were to come back, we'd be the same as those who are bombing us and killing us. The oppressors. We cannot return to the tyrant of Damascus, Bashar al-Assad, the chemical attacker, the one who bombed us at night, who displaced us, who killed our children, caused me a long-term disability. We cannot return. Not myself, not my relatives, nor our families. All the displaced cannot do this. It's not possible. It's not possible. Never. This is Abu Muhammad, a Syrian from El in Idlib, who was interviewed by AFP on whether he would want to return home after he was forced to flee after the war broke out in Syria. Since the conflict started in 2011, more than half of the country's pre-war population has been forced to flee their homes like Abu Muhammad. 
including 5.5 million people who went abroad to Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, and across the globe to find safety. But not everyone managed to escape across the country's border. Many remain within Syria, but away from their homes and communities, creating a new generation of displaced peoples yearning for a fresh start and a home that, in many cases, no longer exists. People who find themselves in this situation are known as IDPs, or internally displaced persons. In 2018 alone, there were 1.6 million new displacements, of which 870,000 were living in what are known as last resort camps, meaning that they have exhausted financial and social assets to meet their basic needs, according to the United Nations. <laughs> On the border with Iraq lies Al Hol camp managed by the U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, which is the largest of its kind in the area and was originally meant to house 10,000 people. Now, it hosts almost 62,000 from Syria, Iraq, Europe, and Asia. Many are accused of family ties with IS fighters who were displaced by the Kurdish-led offensive to retake IS-held territory. The living conditions within the camp have been decried as uninhabitable by the World Health Organization, and its residents face increasing danger every day. Al Hol camp recently made headlines because of a rapid increase in crime, which resulted in the murder of 20 men and women in the month of February. Since the beginning of 2021, 31 people have been killed, six of them with a sharp object and the other 26 with pistols. This is Jabir Sheikh Mustafa, a Kurdish official at the Al-Hol camp. He says the death toll has more than doubled since February 8 when it stood at 14. Those who commit these crimes are Daesh cells within the camp, and there are also Hizbah groups that commit these crimes. Hizbah is a religious group notorious in the camp, but... Some say that tribal score settling between residents could also be to blame for some of the murders, according to AFP reports, as well as a drastic reduction in guards patrolling the camp despite its chronic overcrowding. On top of all this, a large blaze broke out in the camp at the beginning of the year, which killed six people, including five children, and at least 36 others were injured, the Kurdish administration reported. Even aid group Médecins Sans Frontières had to temporarily suspend operations last month after the killing of one of its team members. MSF's emergency manager, Will Turner, said people are being killed with a brutal frequency, often in the tents where they live. He stressed that it's not a safe environment for children to grow up in. Eighty percent of the residents of Al Hol camp are women and children. This is often the case in these camps because women face added challenges to providing economic security for their families. UN women found that Syrian women not only have higher rates of poverty than men, but they also face an increased risk of gender-based violence, all the while shouldering the responsibility of caring for their children and other family members. The majority of IDPs are considered women and children. I think it's over half of IDPs are, are women and children. Diana Reyes is a Syrian-American health researcher with the Syria Public Health Network Research. 
The 10-year conflict has claimed an estimated 586,000 lives and decimated the country's health infrastructure. So widowed Syrian women also face a myriad of social, economic, and health challenges like never before. Um, you have a lot of families in this in these contexts, and some of these families don't have, you know, a, a male figure, you know, to to rely on for um, access to livelihoods and 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 to, for financial stability. Where women have to sort of sustain their families um, in a in a protracted crisis. I mean, there's really no way out for them unless they have other family members who are supportive. Um, there's a lot of reports of pregnancies in this context, too. Um, there's not a lot of family planning. So you have a lot um, of women who become pregnant, whether they're planning for it or not, and then need access to reproductive health care. And that's been noted as something that's a huge shortage in IDP settings. Raising a family in this context, I think, is underestimated and undercovered. Um, and mental health needs are great. I mean, across the population, um, among women, the elderly, those who are disabled, and I think um, the psychosocial stressors that are experienced by this woman are really underestimated and underreported. Uh, Gender-based violence is an issue that's also uh, been covered in this context and is of uh, you know great priority to NGOs that are working with these populations is expanding. Um, access to to support for women who've experienced gender-based violence. But of course, there are many barriers in terms of, you know, stigma and also, you know, the, the cultural norms that prevent women from speaking about uh, gender-based violence that they might be experiencing. Due to lockdown measures triggered by the outbreak of COVID-19, similar issues have worsened for women across the globe, triggering the rights group to decry this shadow pandemic of violence against women. UNFPA warned that the pandemic could result in millions more cases of gender-based violence everywhere. Even before the pandemic, the economic situation of Syrian refugee women was already extremely precarious, with a high unemployment and women making up almost 62% of those working in the informal sector, such as agriculture. Diana says that communities in which women IDPs are living in are often very conservative, with many having little interest in talking about women's issues such as gender-based violence and mental health. When I was in Turkey in 2017, when there was a Women's Humanitarian Day and, you know, they were rolling out like a lot of awareness about gender-based violence, I don't think it was received very well by, you know, males in this, um, operating in this context. And I think a lot of it has to do with cultural norms. And I mean, it really brings to light why we need humanitarian interventions, including those related to protection and mental health, to be uh, very culturally sensitive and, and culturally aware. And, and how can you do that? I think it's really starting by talking to women in these contexts and asking them, you know, what they've experienced, um, uh, both physically and, and mentally in terms of uh, gender-based violence, using words that, you know, they they use themselves that can define this issue and then um, starting to really discover like ways in which to intervene and, and to support them. And um, I will make the note that this can be facilitated and has been. Noha Al-Kamcha, a Syrian expert on humanitarian aid and civil society in Syria, experienced similar backlash to her work around women's rights when she was working with IDPs on the ground. I personally have, I'm someone who've worked in camps when I first relocated to Turkey and I was staying inside the camps. I, was, I stayed in Atma and I stayed in Qah and I stayed in Karama. Um, and I was crossing borders at the time to do this kind of work. And I was working with women committees, 
that I helped form, you know, to do a, a little bit of vocational trainings, a little bit of psychological support and doing like some nursing classes and, you know, personal development up until I was actually kicked out of the camp. Like I was literally told that you are not welcomed here. You cannot work here. We don't know what your agenda, what agenda you're coming with. The people that you're aiding do not need your help. And it was someone sent by an armed group. I had to leave and I could never go back. But back then it was much better than now because now they are under the grip of these, of these groups and they control their food, they control their lives, they control their health, they control their access to everything, to all services you could possibly imagine. So there is a huge challenge there that civil society organizations or humanitarian organizations face on daily basis to work with IDPs. There are customs and traditions that are often intended by patriarchal practices in the community, limiting women's freedom and their impl the implementation of, you know, independent activities that could potentially empower women. After working with international organizations and civil society groups, she believes that although IDP camps provide an important refuge for those most vulnerable, the allocation of aid funds may not be effectively promoting the well-being of its residents. A lot of the development agencies focused and poured so much money into humanitarian activities and projects. And that led a lot of the these local communities and IDPs to rely on the food basket instead of creating projects that could, you know, assist them in wanting to work, wanting to contribute to a society, rebuilding a society in general, rather than just putting people in the camp, shove them in, and then give them hygiene kits and food baskets and winterization kits. And the impact of it is, is immense. There will be a lot of work needed and a lot of money needed to get people out of IDPs, to convince them to get them out of camps and have a normal life or normalize them in a way that they could just become what they were before the war. She says that the shortcomings of humanitarian organizations exclude local groups from being part of the decision-making process, which is vital in her opinion to deliver efficient strategies that empower IDPs and women's groups. The top-bottom approach of doing aid work is really bad. Time is passing and conflicts are getting more complicated and expanding. And the approach is still the same. In conflicts, we have to involve local communities in the decision-making process. Decision-making that has to affect their lives directly. And working in a program, in an aid program that has to not only involve the community, but also employ the community in the project so, because they know better than the donor and then the INGO. Because, for example, the, in the Northwest Syria, there are so many women-led groups that are in initiatives that created, but also directly affected by the precarious like political conditions in Northwest and, you know, which usually affects the economy, the security and the daily lives, the power of the society and the, and their work and their correspondence with the, the de facto authorities have a lot of different effects on women initiatives and their work. So their perspective is very essential to be heard. Despite the grave difficulties facing Syrian women, 
Both Diana and Noha have witnessed a growing interest in women's rights issues on the part of local Syrian women. Diana says that the women in the field have promoted women's integration and bolstered economic opportunities for them in the camp, which has led to many success stories of women finding work and going into education in the healthcare sector. First, with some of the women that I speak with, and again, I mentioned that these are health professionals, but a lot of them have left their current careers in teaching or, you know, whatever they were doing uh, prior to their displacement or prior to the Syrian conflict and have joined the health workforce as midwives, as nurses, and even as doctors in order to, to serve the population because they just see this great need. And of course, this, this part of the country is particularly conservative. So the need for women working in, you know, obstetric care, for example, is, is really, uh, really coveted. So these women will, will specialize in and become healthcare workers just to support other women in their community. And I think this is really key because this is a conservative society is having other women specialized in this space who can really gain the trust, I think, of, of IDP women who, who need support uh, rather than, you know, well-intentioned, I'm sure, but, but I think men working in, in the humanitarian context. Noah says that this renewed focus on women's rights was triggered by the outbreak of the Arab Spring protests 10 years ago, that championed freedom of speech from all corners of Syrian society. That's the good side of the conflict, that women have been able to form organizations, uh, initiatives, work with communities, and especially in those conservative societies. You know, like I'm not talking about what happened in Aleppo or Damascus, but those living in rural of Idlib and Aleppo have been able to do work that they would never ever be able to do prior to 2011. You know, challenging the patriarchal system that dominates society, enshrined by the religiously strict de facto authorities, which is always has been a challenge to any human rights work for women. What happened in 2011 was not just really challenging Assad or the government, but also challenging the cultural norms and the traditions and you know, women have t- taken the streets just like men did, despite of, you know, their families' rejections or societies or communities. And that was one of the good things that happened in the Syrian revolution or the Syrian uprising. Thank you for listening to this episode of The New Arab Voice. It was produced by myself, Hugo Goodridge, and my colleague, Guy Karamatza with additional help from Inigo Alexander. And don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.